Steve Gonzalez told me one time, uh, uh, we were out playing golf, he said, Phil, you should have more kids. <laughs> uh, they're awesome. And you're awesome, too. You're here and you receive and we, we all get to do what we do. That's wonderful. Uh, so far, we've said that simple love is when we affirm another's value with uncomplicated, quiet, personal sacrifices based on another person's emotional and physical needs. So far, we've said that Jesus Christ incarnates himself. Incarnates, just a theological word, means he shows up in the flesh. Jesus Christ incarnates himself in contemporary society through a community of courtesy. When Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he washed all their feet, and he told them all to wash one another's feet. So he intended to produce a community of courtesy. Simple love is not just our theology, but when our personality takes on a resemblance to Christ. And the equivalence of washing one another's feet becomes a common occurrence in the house of God. Outreach is an important calling, but it's not what we're talking about. We talk about that at another time. We'll talk about our outreach. There's a message for that, too. There's a message for washing the feet of those who are outside of our belief system, our church, our fellowship. If Christianity were a product, evangelism and community would be uh, the selling of that product. Um, but simple love and loving in the community is about improving the product. Let me say that again. Evangelism would and outreach would be the selling of the product, but community and simple love in the community would be the improvement of the product. You know, this is, a, this is a truth that maybe if you've been around, you know it's true. That you would be better off staying outside of some collections of Christians because they will serve you as long as you remain a pagan. But if you ever join them, they will oppress you. <laughs> They will persecute you or they will teach you how to manipulate because they're so unhealthy. We can be the body of Christ, but we can still be unhealthy. Today, I want to talk to you about three simple shifts in our thinking that will actually move simple love as a possibility and a theory into practice. You need to understand that simple love is simple, but that belies the fact that it's hard. It's hard because it requires you and I to embrace a struggle. I'm asking you to embrace a struggle today. It's a, it's a struggle with self. And in reality, it's a struggle with an evil and destructive force that taught us how to discover and develop our egos in the first place. The serpent that deceived Eve into being over-concerned about her image still shows up, still shows up when we're really enjoying being harmonious and helpful and patient and kind 
And he will suggest to us, the serpent will still suggest, maybe the serpent is a she, I don't know, but the serpent will suggest to us that being so cooperative and generous is going to lead us to being taken advantage of and oppressed. And so we either withdraw or we become aggressive. May I welcome you to the most important fight of your life. May I invite you to the noble struggle of a love war, a war with your own ego, with your own pride, with your own self-centeredness that we all have, a struggle that may not occur so much within your, what I call your hero wars, the places where you win and fight every week and you do things that are really big and really important. By the way, I want to, we need to stop here for a second and commend you for those big wars that you win every week. You, you know, if you could look around this room, you would find that there's people who do heroic and amazing things every week. There, there are people who build, do beautiful construction and build beautiful living spaces every week of their life. There are people who conduct highly intensive analysis of chemicals and finances and all kinds of scientific experiments there. Or some of you spend your days doing very labor-intensive tasks in all kinds of weather and exposure to all kinds of elements. And you work really hard every day. Some of you give medical care that if done with expertise, prolongs somebody's life. Or if you do it wrong, you can take their life. You live in that world. And at least one person here in our church does surgery. And there's a couple of people here who deliver babies. And, and there's many of you here who teach Math and science and literature and history and geography and you prepare what a responsibility that is to every day of your life knowing that if you do your job right, you're going to prepare young minds for careers and college and all of that. And if you don't do it right, they won't be prepared. What a responsibility, what a heroic thing that you're doing, those of you who teach school. And then there are those of you who are in social services and psychological counseling roles. And you're literally, you're literally a, the conversation that may keep people from taking their own lives. You're, you're the conversation that may lead them to get treatment for serious, serious drug addiction. Some of you are in the wonderful world, world of marketing where you, marketing, where you take a, a product and, and uh, in spite of all the noise and the cacophony of voices out there, you get your client's product, product noticed and your client gets rich because you do your job so capably. It's, it's fun. You, it's fun to go out there every week and succeed. It's exciting. And, and you build lives and you buy houses and you buy cars and you buy wardrobes and you do all these amazing things and you, you give to charity and you give to churches. Awesome, incredible. But it's the, you know, here, here's the, here's the, well, we're not talking about all that. That's another sermon series. We're not talking about all that. It's the little sneaky, uh, I don't think I read our text. I think I forgot to read the text. But the text says, can we put it back up there, guys? Can we put the text up there? The text says, the little foxes 
catch all the foxes. I, I think the King James says little foxes spoil the vine. Catch all the foxes, those little foxes, before they ruin the vineyard of love. And this is a woman we know is a Shunammite. And you don't want me to preach about this text too much because it, was very, it would be very embarrassing. Uh, one, day, one day when Jason was about 12, he's yelled out to me, Dad, do you know there's pornography in the Bible? <laughs> he was reading the Song of Solomon. He was reading this text. And reading these scriptures around this. But that's one context to put this in. Is romantic and physical love and affection between people. But it's also, we need to put this in all, all of those close proximity places in our lives. Even our small group at church or the close friends we have. Certainly our family. That this Shunammite woman who wrote this. This lover of the king, this, this romantic partner of the king says there's little sneaky things. Anytime we, the fox is a metaphor for sneaky. There's sneaky little things that sneak in. And when we determine these sneaky little things, whether we defeat them, determine whether we live a life of heavenly love or hellish conflict. Even though we might be doing those incredible experiments at the lab at work and we might be making those big complicated deals and making, or we might be the incredible marketer who's making people a lot of money. We might even be the great preacher who's drawing a big crowd. But what determines the heaven, earthly heaven or earthly hell of that man or woman's life is those little interactions with their spouse, their kids, their neighbors, their friends, the people they do life with. There's that personal arena of life that involves co-workers, friends, families, neighbors, lovers, where kindness, patience, unresentfulness, humility, modesty, courtesy. You know, uh, he talks about boastfulness there and not being boastful. Don't you just want to stop bothering to share anything with another person who can never be impressed? You know, that person that's close, these people that are close and the people you want to be intimate with, and they basically respond with everything you share was, that ain't nothing. My brother and I had a friend like that one time. We got so tired of it that we, we got out of love completely. And we, no matter what he would say, we would say, that ain't nothing. Some of you remember Sam Wrighty. I remember Jay was a little boy and riding home from a church work day. One day down at Grant Street, Jay turned to me and said, that Sam Reddy has too much of that happy spirit. <laughs> Sam Reddy, I, I, I used to love to share stuff with him. Whether it was something I saw in the Word of God or something that I felt like God was going to do in our church. And he was our first church treasurer. Sam would always say one word, Wow. You just want to share your life with a wow person, don't you? You just want to share everything with a person who when you tell them a story or you tell them a, this latest thing you heard and they go, wow. And you just felt like with Sam that he meant it. You just thought he means it. He really, he really is impressed. When that person's always, uh, that ain't nothing person, you just want to shut down. <laughs> the Shunammite who wants... Every friend of hers, 
She's, if you read the book of Song of Solomon, she's, a lot of her conversation are with these lady friends of hers. And she wants everything to cooperate with her relationship with her lover. She doesn't want anything to get in the way. She, she wants to make sure nothing inter, interrupts intimacy. She, she wants what she wants with her lover. She says, catch all the foxes. Help me out here. Those little foxes. What, what, what if we begin to build each other's relationships? Instead, we do the opposite sometimes, right? You know, yes, my family cares. They're talking about the little things here. Let me get back to my subject. Talking about the little things that we do that make our lives heaven or hell. My family cares and appreciates the big things I do. I, I, they do. They appreciate that I do my part to build up this ministry and what that provides for the community and them. They're not blind to, to, the, to that. But what determines the tenor of our relationship is a bunch of little stuff. When I don't let my voice go into that next octave when I speak to them. That's what they really care about. When I don't sigh over what they say or do. Or when I don't exasperatingly let out a breath. I mean, you think that's a little thing, but... That's the little foxes that spoil the line. When I don't get offended when they offer constructive criticism, when I don't clam up but keep engaging when something doesn't go my way, when I don't choose to put my clothes away and organize as Sherry's trying to go to sleep. <laughs> That's what she cares about. And like I said last Sunday, when I get up in the morning and grind the coffee beans and not do it the night before, which I would prefer because I like to just flip the switch and got coffee. And you know what? These, these people that I live with and have lived with, they have never once asked me to keep preaching when I get home. <laughs> no one's, could you, Dad, would you just repeat that again? Would you say that was <laughs> there's a pretty well known uh, Christian children's worker, and I, I don't want to be too descriptive because I'm these days that you used to could tell all kinds of stories and nothing ever, but now with podcasts and everything else, you so I and I don't want to be critical. I, I don't want to, uh, but I, but I want to give you a window into what I'm preaching. And if I don't tell you some stories, you, you kind of, well, what did he mean by that? What did he mean by big hero things versus the, the fine print of our lives? What, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, this one particular uh, child, he's still, uh, he'll still active today doing work in ministry. And uh, I, I've known you know, way back, I, I've met him and, and uh, uh, he's done phenomenal work. And, and, I, and I believe he has a great deal of passion for uh, children, especially children who are in the worst neighborhoods of our country. He has huge, huge um, passion for them and has done so much work for them. He's put himself into harm's way. He's been stabbed more than once. He's been shot. Um, you know, when, I, when you read the words of Paul, if I give my body to be burned, he's given his body to be burned. But I... I 
I got close to a, a person who worked closely with him years ago. He told me, he said, Phil, I got to tell you, he just doesn't treat his wife right. <laughs> he, said, he said, one day we went to the airport and um, he was to catch a plane and I was there and his wife was there. And when she dropped him off, he didn't even look back. He didn't look back. He didn't say, give her a kiss or a hug or see you later. Just grabbed his luggage and ran for the airplane. I, I heard rumors that they got divorced. I don't, I don't know. It doesn't really matter, okay? It doesn't really matter. But Paul is very, very clear in the text that I read the first week. If you weren't here the first week, go read 1 Corinthians 13. He was very clear that I can preach with the tongues of men and of angels. He was very clear that I can give my body to be burned. He was very clear that I can give all of my possessions to the poor. He didn't say I, I, I necessarily didn't have love for doing those things. And he didn't say those things could not be fueled by love. And I'm going to explain that a little better in a minute. But, it, but he said, you can do that and not have love. And then he gets down there and he says, love is patient and kind and courteous. He's, it's, very, it's so abundantly clear that Paul wants our manners to match our mission. This great big thing we do, this, this heroic thing we do, and, and, and I don't believe building a church is any more heroic than building a construction firm. I don't believe it's more heroic. So we all do these big heroic things, but the fabric of our lives is determined by the little things in our life. That's what I'm trying to say to you. In fact, it, let, let me just explain something about love. This is something that has been preached quite a bit. So sometimes I forget to preach it again because uh, it's been preached quite a bit and taught. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a whole book about it. The four different levels of love. Four different words for love represents four different levels of love. Uh, the, the, the first level of love is storge. And it's, uh, well, it includes sexual love. It's really more broader than that. It's just that physical um, pull that we have toward one another. The, 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 the appreciation for uh, physical um, proximity and, and touch. Storge. Good, it's a good word. It's not an evil word. It's not, I've, I've heard it preached like, oh, that's evil. No, God created storge. God created us to be attracted to one another. God, God created us. So we, we greet one another. We shake one another's hand. We may even give each other a, a hug. It doesn't mean that we have a deep relationship, but it's just we, we, there's something wonderful about human connection. And, and uh, the next word uh, that you're, many of you are familiar with is the word eros, which means uh, romantic love. And uh, roses and wine and roses and all of that. Romantic love. And then the next level of love is phileo. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. And uh, it, it's, a, it's, it's camaraderie and friendship and belonging and having people that are brought together with similar interest. Friendship love. Friendship love is also a wonderful type of love. Paul doesn't use any of those three words, though, in 1 Corinthians 13. He uses a word that human beings, without the help of God, are incapable of. And so when he's talking about coming down off our high horse 
in being kind and gentle and respectful and courteous and not keep take keeping account of wrongs suffered, he uses the word agape. And agape is the unconditional love of God. So when Paul says up there, you can give your body to be burned and you can do all of this and not have love, he's saying you, can't, you can do all that and not have agape. You can do all that and not have God's unconditional love. You, it doesn't, yeah, yes, you have some form of love, but you don't have the highest. So what this, is, what this message is talking about, what this series is talking about, is saying I want to commit myself to the highest level of love. And it's so interesting. What a wonderful, the Bible is just full of paradoxes, you know, opposites, things that seem to contradict. And what an awesome, what what an interesting idea that you have this paradox that the highest level of love is expressed in the very lowest arena of our behaviors. Isn't that interesting? Does that interest you? Does that, that kind of spike your curiosity? That the highest level of love is expressed in the lowest, most common form of human interactions. Like how, how we speak to one another and how whether or not we forgive each other and whether we're kind to each other and whether we're patient with each other when the other person's not doing things fast enough and we're patient or we get impatient, we're, we're stepping out of agape and we're stepping out of the love of God. Isn't that just fascinating? And you know what I really love about it? You know what I really love about it? I love about it most is that it describes God. It describes the most powerful, awesome, frightening being of the universe and says God is tender and caring and he doesn't keep account of wrongs suffered. Oh my goodness, that's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome, right? That's pretty amazing. That the God of the universe, no wonder he sent his son to die on the cross. No wonder he permitted that whole incarnation thing to happen. No wonder he permitted that because he's love. It's the highest expression of love. And and this highest expression of love, it saves the abused and neglected children of the world. And it holds the wife before you board the airplane. It does both. If you're one of those highly gifted savants here today, get it right on both sides of the street. And you'll be so successful. See, and this is another thing about this text that I really like. He says, if you don't get this right, you will, you will not profit. You will not profit. An old preacher explained that to me one time. He said, what it means, Phil, is you can have gifts that other people will benefit from your gift. But if you don't have a right love relationship with God and people, you will not benefit. They will benefit, but you won't. And so, I hope you... Mike, that was great while ago. Where's Mike? He was over here. Mike, that was great about trusting God. Do you trust God enough to believe that when he tells you this stuff about love and it's all through the scripture, when he tells you to believe he is doing it because he loves me? He's telling me to behave that way, not because he wants me to live in some type of oppression to another human being and he wants me to be dominated by someone else's fickleness. 
and someone else's ridiculous, ridiculous sensitivities. No, no, no. He's saying, I want you to be highly successful with your life. Whatever that means. I know that means different things to different people in different circumstances. But I want you to be highly successful in your life. And I'm telling you, if you happen to be one of the savants here in this room who's just amazing at something and you're just off the charts amazing, I'm telling you, if you will get it on both sides of the street, your, your, your headlines and your fine print, you'll get it on both sides of the street. You, just might go, you might go from being a mere success to being a total celebrity. And I've, I've told stories before, I won't, you won't tell them this morning, of a few Christian celebrities I've met, people that I, I do respect and deeply admire. And I don't use celebrity in a pejorative term when I say it. But I was always amazed at how kind they were, how interested they were in me. You know, when I met uh, Rick Warren, and I met Bill Hybels, and I met John Maxwell, and I met Billy Graham 35 years ago. They have good manners. They make you feel, I'm telling you, there are some great people who are jerks. Absolutely. There are some celebrities that are jerks. But the ones, the most of the ones is in the Christian world that I've met. You're with them for five minutes and you don't wonder why they're so successful. Because they make you feel like you're the only person they have to talk to all day. I don't know how they do it, but they do it. So maybe that's a key to success. Huh? Maybe. You want to be successful? I want you to be successful. Let me give you those three shifts in thinking as quickly as I can this morning. We want to give you time to fellowship. So I need to do this in about 10 minutes. Agree and grasp that love is a desire for being to flourish. What is being? Anything that bees. You want it to flourish. Anything that exists, whether it's a room, a chair, your car, the person that you're with, you want them, it, the company you work for, the church you attend, the organizations you belong to, the marriage you're in, the family you're in. You want to bring order and beauty and joy to it. God created the heavens and the earth. All you see, all you don't see. Earth was a soup of nothingness. A bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. God's spirit brooded like a bird above the watery abyss. God, in creation, was attracted to that which was full of order, disorder, and chaos. And he said, I've got to bring beauty to it. I've got to bring order to it because God is love. I'm not a fan of the word empowerment. Not that it's a totally bad word, but it can be a wrong emphasis. Empowerment implies that I'm going to bestow on you and gift you higher social status. Love begins with simple, the simple word empathy, which doesn't mean I'm going to magically transport you to higher social status, but I'm going to, A, sit with you in your chaos and suffering. I'm going to sit with you in your situation. God's spirit brooded like a bird over the watery abyss, it said. 
And B, I'm going to execute an action of encouragement. I may not believe you empowerment, but I'm going to give you encouragement. Then God said, you know, then God said, if you read in Genesis 1, then God said, six times God said, don't underestimate the power of mere encouraging words. I said, don't underestimate the power of little mere encouraging words. If you merely cultivate a deep desire for the people, the things, the organizations to flourish, even inanimate objects, it may change some of your lives. I don't have a magic bullet to solve depression. And I know some of you suffer from it. But let me give you one thing to do if you're suffering from depression. Go home today and clean your house. Clean your house from top to bottom. Get all the closets organized. Make it beautiful. You deserve a beautiful place to live. You deserve a clean, beautiful, bright place to live. Make, I don't care, my wife is so incredible at anything we've ever lived in. We've lived in tiny apartments and everything. She always makes it, she always brings order and beauty to whatever we live in. And we never, ever once felt poor. And we really were, but nobody told us. We never felt that way. We just remodeled our kitchen, you know, living room at home. And it's bringing us joy. You say, well, that's, uh, you're materialistic. Well, God's materialistic, for goodness sake. He built a beautiful world. And, and, and if I read anything about heaven, it's got streets of gold and gates of pearl. I think God must be pretty materialistic. You start to desire that things and people flourish. We're not called to be liked by everybody, but we're called to be likable. Hebrews 12, 14, make every effort to live in peace with everybody. That includes the people you're married to. People ultimately judge us by how we make them feel. Now, I'm not suggesting you can always control that, but just be aware of it and do your part. Okay? It's not always possible to make people feel better, and it's not always possible to make people feel loved, but making people feel better you know, sometimes to love people, you have to make them feel bad, right? Sometimes you have to rebuke them. Sometimes you have to say, straighten up and fly right. That doesn't make them feel good. So you can't always do this. But here, here's, here's, here's what I want to leave with you today. The last words of the sermon. Make, pe- make making people feel better your default. Okay, is that, did you get that? You know what a default is, right? Everybody know what the default is. The default does, you know, that's what that's the settings on your computer. When it all gets all screwed up, you 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 refresh it and it goes back to default mode. It's original settings. So just make it the place you always go back to when you don't know what to do, and you're and you're not sure whether you should rebuke people or give them a hard time. Just make them feel better. Now, now do you understand what default is? Are you there today? You're getting quiet.
Number two, ask God to show you your blind spots. 1 Peter 2.2 2 says, grow up in your salvation. Grow up means you, you find out things about yourself that you didn't know before. You're an extraordinary self-aware person if you know and you own your own unkindness, your own impatience, your own boastfulness, your own discourteousness, your own selfishness, your own desire to bend others to your will, your irritability, your aggression. You're keeping score of all the ways you've been offended. If, you, if you're aware of that, you are, you're on the road to being well-developed as a person. Uh, you know, a, a female Russian athlete at Peng Chang this past week tested positive for steroids while wearing a shirt that said, I don't do doping. Serious, serious. Ask God to show your blind spots. Pray about it. Read about it. Think about it. And if you're really brave, ask about it. Ask somebody. Invite them in your life. There's a great tool that I love, and I don't have time to really explain it, but I've used it. You've probably been in some class where I've taught it. If you've been premarital counseling with me, I use it. And I use it in leadership class. I use it all the time. I think it's just an amazing, wonderful little tool. It's called Jahari Window. And I'm going to just put it up there right now for you. And it talks about four aspects of your life. One is your open self that, that every, everybody knows. Every, everybody knows that I'm skinny and everybody knows that I lose my keys all the time. So I mean, it's just, that's just public, that is public information, right? That, that, it didn't used to be public information, but after a while it got out. Then there's the hidden self. Now that used to be losing my keys all the time, used to be my hidden self, but the people that, that knew it told everybody. So now it's, now it's the public self. There's hidden self. There, there's things about you that only someone who lives with you knows, right? Maybe, maybe you don't hang your clothes up, something like that. Or, or you, you leave half empty cups of coffee all over the house and, and they get gross. <laughs> Then there's, here's where the drama begins, the blind self. The things that other people know about you that you don't know about yourself. And this is where it gets fun. Because this is where we have conflict. Because if I live with you or I spend much time with you, I'm probably going to try to inform you of some area that I'm sure that you see because I see it. I'm just sure that we, I'm sure you'll be so happy that I affirmed what you already knew about yourself. But no, that doesn't usually work like that. You just, no, I don't do that. I don't say that, you know. But this is, this, oh, by the way, there's one more unknown self. That's the stuff about you. It's a mystery that only God knows. And when you grow and you, you begin to grow, you get less, less and stuff in the blind self. You know, you, that, that window starts to get empty because you start to trust and you start to, you start to let yourself be informed. It, less happens in the unknown self because you begin to pray and God begins to reveal and you become more self-aware. And you become less harsh and judgmental I'll tell you, it will guarantee you'll be less critical of others when you become more aware of yourself. And then you have 
less hidden self because you're just closer to more and more people. This whole Jahari window, you know what it's about? It's about a community that loves each other and gets to know each other and begins to trust each other. I love the Jahari window. Let's live in the Jahari window. Let's, let's get our Windex out and clear up the ones that aren't, aren't, aren't clear. No, finally, number three, ask God to deliver you from your inhibitions. First thing that happened to Adam and Eve after they declared their independence from God was they knew they were naked. Naked. Naked, naked is Texas. <laughs> they knew they were naked. Boy, my, that Texas accent just comes out sometimes. <laughs> they knew they were naked. <laughs> and for the first time in their life, they felt the emotion of embarrassment or shame. They made themselves fig leaves to hide their nakedness. But when God came, he made them adequate covering. But what that body image embarrassment represents is that now we as humans have the capacity, which we didn't have before the fall, to be aware of how other people are looking at us and to be concerned with what they're thinking when they're looking at us. And the ability to feel awkward is now a possibility. And it wasn't a possibility before. Think of that this week. It's a popular word now. It's awkward. Every time you say awkward this week, remember there was a time after we were created that we did not have the ability to feel awkward. And if you've ever raised a child, you know that they have that same capacity for the first couple of years or three or four years. They have the capacity to never feel awkward. You have to teach them to wear clothes. You have to teach them not to blurt out family secrets. Because they do not have the ability to feel awkward, but we learn quickly how to feel awkward. And I'm going to tell you, serving other people, getting down and washing people's feet feels awkward the first time you do it. The first time you're kind and you're gentle, and if you're not used to it, you feel awkward being kind and gentle. You feel awkward being affirming if you've never done it. You feel awkward telling people they're amazing if you've never done it. I want you to get free and uninhibited. I want you to shake aside your inhibitions. And I, I, I used to watch this. I haven't seen this in a long time, but you know, you have these moments in church when, when you go, everybody help put these chairs away. We're better organized. Brandy's helping us get better organized. So we don't have those moments as much as we used to. When, oh my goodness, we forgot to ask anybody to clean up. We got a, hundred, to a couple hundred people here. Oh, well, everybody help us. And I would, I would watch certain guys, you know, people that are like blue collar, do blue collar work all the time. They just jump in there and grab the chairs and start doing the mop and all this stuff. But I would watch my white collar people. That'd be like, You could tell that serving at that level was something they weren't, they were used to hiring people to do that, you know. They called the janitor for that. <laughs> well, loosen up. Loosen up, because if you're going to love people, you've got to get uninhibited. You've got to get free. You've got to just run over, just put your arms around them and give them a big old bear hug sometimes. That's what you do when you love people. When you love people, 
You run, get the plunger, and you plunge the toilet. I don't care. I don't care if you were going to be a stockbroker the next morning and move around to billions of dollars. The people that have the plugged up toilet don't care. Jesus was get. Jesus was. Uh, he was a big. He was a big time dude. He was Jesus. <laughs> he created the world. And <laughs> he created the world, and he's doing this, washing the disciples' feet. The creator of the world. The creator of the world. The one who spoke the world into existence. He's doing this. He had no inhibitions. And that's what enabled him to love. See, you can love, 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 but you've got to get over the awkwardness of loving. Because it does turn into awkward, doesn't it? So I don't judge you. It, uh, one day, see... This is the irrational. You'll never understand that awkwardness. We'll never understand. It's irrational. And uh, it is is irrational that two unclothed people who had been unclothed all the time back in Genesis suddenly felt uncomfortable. What happened? Well, sin happened. Chapter 3, they begin to be uncomfortable in Genesis 3. But... You are clothed today. I noticed that. And I'm thankful. (laughs) So you're all set to go love. Because that's all the the inhibition you need is have clothes on. (laughs) That's all you need. Nothing else. Uh, This week, and I'm, I'm going through a stack of papers and, and I, I uh, come across this note written in crayon, and I could tell it was Elise. And she must have been, I mean, she, it's been a long time since she's wrote a note in green crayon. Right? So I don't know exactly when this happened, but it said, Dad, when I'll get home, when I get home, I'll help you with your youth group sermon. <laughs> I had set, probably, I, was, I remember back years ago, I preached the youth group and I'd said something about it. And so she did help me. I do vaguely remember that she did help me. See, most children lack the self-consciousness that gets us into feeling awkward about offering our help. Because they, they're closer to the father, I guess. According to the example of God, Jesus, and Paul, once we get our clothes on, though, we need to stop worrying about what people think. And we need to quit worrying that somebody's going to think, are they, are they the servant? That looks like a servant. <laughs> Philippians 2.4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Conclusion. In the world of marketing and merchandising, it's expected that fine print will not match the bold print, right? That's expected. In the world of journalism, it's expected that the headlines will often obscure the real story. Simple love is about making the fine print match the bold print. And the true story of my life match the headlines of my life. Yes, I want to preach a great sermon. I want to be a good church leader. 
But I don't want to leave my wife standing, feeling dejected in some public place because I've got to go meet somebody more important or someone else I need to impress. I want to be completely present with whoever I'm with the best I can. I'm not going to be 100%, neither will you. But we can get better. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for your word. Thank you for the instructions that you give us. Everything we hear that you tell us to do, where it may seem kind of hard, you know, God, but I'm encouraged right now because you're also telling others to do that for me. You're telling me that I can expect that from the people that I serve and love and walk with. They can expect it from me, but we're in a covenant and we can expect it from each other. Let us understand and forgive and be so flexible and let us be patient when we fail at this because we're all going to fail at this. But let us get better and better and better until the perfect day when you come to take us home. And bless our even our fellowship time. Let us practice this simple love. In Jesus' name, amen.